Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our young adult ministry leader, Riley Monzo. Hey everyone, welcome to Tuesday Night Church. My name is Riley. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Monterey, and Pastor Nate was kind enough to let me share God's Word with you today, and I'm thrilled to get the chance. Uh, Joining a church service like this online can feel a little awkward and weird sometimes uh, because you don't get to take in the service with the rest of your church family. But I want to let you know that I have two of my favorite church members in the house right now. My wife, Chesley, and our little bun in the oven. That's right, Chesley is pregnant. We're 17 weeks along. Chesley is 17 weeks along. And we cannot wait for you all to meet this little child in November. Please be praying for us. We don't know what the heck we're getting ourselves into, but we're excited. And I don't know if you feel more comforted or weird knowing that you're worshiping right now alongside my family, but I hope that you are comforted right now in a time when the world feels like it's just upside down. I hope that you're feeling a bit of comfort today knowing that God is here right now. And this passage that we're about to open up right now is a perfect passage to help us through the ups and downs of life. And before we get into it, I just want to invite you to pray with me as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your word that it is alive, it is active, and it is moving. We believe, Lord, that when we open up your word, that you're not a God who chooses whether or not he wants to speak to us, but that you are a God who is on mission to speak to his people through opening up your word. And so we just want to invite your Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do, and that is to reveal your word to us. Please illuminate our hearts towards your scripture. Help us to come to a deeper and more sincere faith in your son Jesus and his plan for our lives. We love you, God. We invite you here, and we ask that you would speak. We need to hear. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in Ernest Hemingway's short story called The Capital of the World, we read about a young boy named Paco who has a predetermined uh, destiny for himself, and that is to become a bullfighter. His friend in the story tries to help him see how dangerous this plan really is, but Paco has already made up his mind. So to prove a point, Paco's friend grabs a chair, he places a knife on each armrest, tapes them together, and then begins to charge at Paco like he's a bull. And Paco, you know, he's been training for this, he, he dodges the stampeding chair for the first bout, but the second time, he wasn't so lucky. A knife had gouged his leg on the second pass and had hit an artery in his leg. He soon bled out with his head, in quotations, full of illusions, end quote. And there's a lot of morals that we can draw from this story. When you read the whole story, there's a lot of things going on. But I do believe that there's one moral of the story that applies to our message today, and that's this. We might not be able to escape all forms of danger in our lives, but we can resist the illusion 
that danger won't happen to us, that we are just immune to danger. In Psalm 37, we read a portion of scripture that strips away the illusion that says life with God is safe and easy and instead replaces it with a resilient truth that says God is with me even when life isn't safe and easy. David uses this psalm to speak faith into the Israelite people because he knows that if they resist life with God, if they try to live life on their own terms, then just like Paco, they might not walk away from the wounds that they receive while living apart from God. So David approaches this psalm as a wise older brother or a father. He draws on the wisdom that has been deposited into his own life by God's faithfulness to him and then shares it with the Israelites. So in this way, the psalm feels more like a proverb at times rather than a psalm. The structure of this psalm is a work of art as well. David wrote this as an acrostic poem. The idea here is that the first stanza starts off with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet and that each stanza afterwards begins with the next letter in the alphabet. So this song, this psalm, it really sings like a song. Um, and this was strategic by David. David didn't want only his listeners to, you know, take a hold of the truth that he was about to share with them, but he wanted them to memorize it like a song. He wanted them to sing it over their children. He wanted them to teach it to the next generation. And what better way than to do that through a song? And so David here takes this opportunity to speak into the fears, the doubts, and the anxieties that would arise in the hearts of the Israelites. Because David gets it. He's experienced the same kind of fear and concern that he's about to write about. In a way, it seems like David is almost writing this letter to his younger self. So he begins by empathizing with the felt needs of the Israelite people and continues on by exploring the depths of God's truths and concludes with a specific application for how people can live out their devotion to God. This is the kind of writing that would have built up the Israelite people and pointed them towards a sincere faith in Jehovah God, a name for God that we'll explore here in a little bit. And although these truths were geared towards a specific people group, David's words still cut deep into the heart and life and experience of you and me today on the Western Hemisphere in June of 2020. And as we begin to dive into the first stanzas, we'll see that David exposes two of our most instinctual emotions as human beings, anxiety and envy. In Psalm 37, verses 1 through 2, it says this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be envious not of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. All right, let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 2 
to fully understand what David is trying to say, we need to look at who is yourself and who are the evildoers. The yourselves that David is writing to is primarily the Israelite people. Let's notice three things real quick about the Israelites. Number one, they're God's people. God had chosen them to be a people of worship, devotion, and long-standing relationship with the creator of the universe. We see this laid out in Exodus 19, verse 6, and Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Number two, these are David's people. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read about how David is anointed king over Israel. These people are the ones he would give his life towards serving. He has a bond with these people. And number three, this is important to know, these are a traumatized people. When David became king of Israel, he inherited a kingdom full of people who had experienced slavery, betrayal, the loss of loved ones, and the effects of other nations threatening their lives. Although they had seen God rescue them from slavery, overcome their enemies in battle, and preserve their cultural heritage, they still lived with the effects of sin in their lives. This is important to see because when we read this passage, we need to know that David is talking to a people who had received their mission and purpose by God and were led into one of the greatest kingdoms that ever existed, but still they carried a lineage and a history of pain and suffering. I guess the point I'm really trying to make here is that the Israelites wrestled with fear and doubt and they experienced pain even though they knew that God was with them. And what we see here is just that none of us escape the worry that comes our way. But as we'll see soon, David encourages how God can make a way for us to experience joy through the worry. So now let's talk about the evildoers and the wrongdoers. When David speaks of evildoers, he's probably talking about a few different kinds of people, uh, but chances are that he's not talking about people who make you know, frivolous missteps or accidentally make someone feel bad. The Hebrew root word here uh, used for evildoers is the word that means to spoil or to break into pieces. It's a word to describe something that's offensive or something that needs to be thrown out in order to preserve the health of everyone around. These evildoers are the people who create division and poison the water. Have you ever experienced these kind of people in your life? You know, maybe even just the thought of them brings up some kind of well of anxiety inside of your body, or maybe your hands get cold, or maybe your mind runs blank. These are the people that David encourages us not to. To fret over. But wait, it gets better. When David speaks of wrongdoers, he's talking about people who experience moral failure. The Hebrew word at the root of wrongdoers is a word that describes iniquities. Iniquities are the sins that are done internally. We all experience this reality, right? We all have sins that we experience inside of us on a daily basis. So the question that we have to ask here is, why would David infer that we have a jealousy problem with wrongdoers? I think the answer is actually fairly simple. 
We live in a society where iniquity is rarely punished and often rewarded. Here's what I mean. Wrongdoers, or what we might call iniquity affirmers, regularly validate the values and systems that promote our will above God's will. These are the people that we read about in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, who not only sin in this way, but give approval to those who practice them. These are the people who will tell you to follow your heart rather than submitting your desires to God's good will for your life. These are the voices that champion finding your own faith or your own truth while disregarding the truths in scripture that make us uncomfortable. These are the narratives that say you are the author of your own destiny and your own story while completely abandoning the roles and responsibilities that God has given to all of us as Christians. Why are these the prevalent stories we hold to if they inherently are motivated by wrongdoing? Because these stories turn our iniquities into virtue. And the people that assign virtue to our sin are the ones that gain in large part lots of fame and notoriety. And we get jealous about it. So by this point, you're probably realizing that these evildoers, these wrongdoers, are enemies towards the health of our souls. So what is our response supposed to be to these people? David says, don't worry about them coming into your life. I know that probably sounds really bizarre to all of our parents out there. You're probably thinking, how can I protect my kids from experiencing any of these kind of voices? Maybe in your marriage, you're thinking, I don't want any of these kind of narratives popping up inside of my marriage. Or maybe you're unmarried, you're single, you're at home, and you're thinking, I just, I'm trying to protect my body right now. I'm trying to protect my mind right now. I don't want any of these things to come into my mind. Better just to shelter myself from the world, stay in a shelter-in-place mindset for the rest of my life. But David says, don't run away. Instead, he says, to avoid becoming jealous of their platform and their resources. Why? Because their message won't outlast them. In the scope of eternity, their agenda will only last as a blip on the timeline. Rather than worrying about what they may do to you or how you can get what they have, David is going to encourage us to place our energy towards a greater devotion. David reorients the Israelites' desires by pointing all their energy towards worship in verses 3 through 4. And this is what he says in verses 3 through 4. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you all the desires of your heart. So David's saying here, rather than giving our energy towards fear and greed, David says to to do these four commands that refocus our hearts on worship. So let's break down each command and see how each one allows us to live a life of worship. David's first command, trust in the Lord. Easier said than done, right? That word trust literally means to have confidence in someone, to speak on their behalf with boldness because you have a conviction about their character and their nature. But who do we have trust in? 
the Lord. In the Bible, you'll probably see um, Lord in all caps and just know when you're looking at that in your Bible, this isn't um, a typo. It's not someone trying to yell at you about who God is. This is simply a way to identify who the author is talking about. This is a specific name for God in scripture, and it's the name Jehovah. This is a title for God that means the existing one or self-existent one. The idea here is that God has no beginning and he has no end. He has no limits to time and space. He doesn't need anything and he never will need anything. He is all sufficient within himself. David is trying to communicate here to the Israelites that they can trust God because he is consistent. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't need to be paid. He doesn't give in to temptation. He is endlessly reliable so we can trust in him. Now David's second command, do good. It's one thing to trust God intellectually like we just mentioned, but it's a whole other thing to trust God practically. David is telling them that's important to focus your worship in both mind and body. Very rarely do we do both well. If you're oriented more towards a faith that stays in your mind, then you'll need to be proactive about getting outside of yourself to serve others practically. If you're naturally a go-getter, then you'll need to be more disciplined about spending time considering the deep truths of God's word. We don't want to be high in creeds and anemic in deeds, as Martin Luther King Jr. once said. Instead, we want to be trusting God and doing good because these are vital expressions of our faith. Now, our third commandment. This is, our third commandment has to do with where and when we practice our faith. David says in verse 3, Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Here, David encourages the Israelites to dwell in the land that God had given them. This is significant. He wasn't telling them to despise it, but instead to make their home there, to build community, to pursue justice together, to create a culture where people could thrive and flourish in their lives. This land that God had given them was the place to practice their faith within the community. He then goes on to tell them to befriend faithfulness. This phrase is a little hard to understand in the original Hebrew, or more like to translate into English, but basically the words in this phrase come from the root words of security and being fed. It seems like what David is trying to tell the Israelites is that it's not only important to dwell in the land, but to do it in such a way that they could reap the benefits from their labor. The faithful labor of building a healthy community should produce life-sustaining fruit, not only for the people around you, but for yourself as well. There's nourishment from faithful work to build into the place where God has placed you. Now our fourth command has to do with where we find our joy. David calls on his readers to delight yourself in the Lord. Now that word delight comes from the word that means soft or pliable, which in our minds made it doesn't seem like it connects with the word delight. But I think that what maybe is being communicated here 
is that we would have what we might call a tender heart towards God, a soft heart towards God. There's a sense that a soft heart towards God would allow for there to be true joy in our hearts. And attached to this command is a promise. But before we get to the promise, let's talk about the phenomenon that occurs when our hearts follow these four commands. Oftentimes, what happens in our lives when we follow commands that are oriented towards worship, like David listed here, is that we begin to go through a process called spiritual formation. Dallas Willard defines spiritual formation as the experience we have in Christ when one moves and is moved from self-worship to Christ-centered self-denial as a general condition of life in God's present and eternal kingdom. In Willard's definition, spiritual formation continually moves us from a Psalm 37, 1, worrying about what's going to happen to us kind of mindset to a lifestyle of constantly preferring a relationship with Jesus and following his commands or what he calls Christ-centered self-denial. And it's through this formation that our hearts become aligned with the values and principles that God promotes through his word. This process of spiritual formation is exactly what happens when our hearts delight in the Lord. You can almost think of it kind of like this. When you delight yourself in the Lord, then the desires of your heart come into alignment with God And those godly desires that are produced are the ones that God wants to satisfy in your life. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to add to the text. I'm just simply trying to explain what so often happens inside of us as we delight in relationship with God. I feel the liberty to kind of suggest this because I believe this train of thought follows in lockstep with what Jesus told his disciples about friendship in the book of John. In John 15, verses 9 through 11, Jesus told his disciples, quote, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. End quote. The expression of love from God, the self-existent one, and Jesus, God's Son, has always been through this key component of God's nature. Generosity through relationship. This is just how God relates to his people. Oftentimes, though, We feel like God is holding back from us, but more often than not, it's us who are holding back from Him. We may cry out to God asking where He is, but do we spend time hanging out in His Word? We may ask God to help us make an impossible decision in front of us, but do we actually step out and do good to our neighbors and friends? We may want out of a difficult situation But do we take the time to be faithful in our relationship with Jesus in the middle of that situation? If I'm being honest, I don't always do this very well. But let me reassure you 
the most rewarding moments of my life have come from simple devotion to following commands, just like the ones David gives here with the intention of following Jesus with all my mind, heart, and body. The darkest times of my life have come from when I resist relationship with God. So, as we move our energy into practicing relationship with God today, we can then receive God, uh, David's words about moving forward in our lives. In verses 5 through 6, we read about David's unwavering assurance in God's ability to come through on his promises. And he says in verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Let's begin here by discussing what David was trying to communicate with the exhortation to commit your way to the Lord. The Hebrew word for commitment literally means to roll with, and the Hebrew word for way means road. So in a sense, what David is trying to get at here is that we are to roll along our roads towards God. Now, this might sound a little weird at first, but I do think this is a great picture for what commitment really looks like. Rather than thinking of commitment as a one-time decision or just this huge daunting task in front of us, the picture here is just a regular movement towards a particular direction. In this way, commitment to God is a lifelong series of decisions that intentionally, daily, and regularly communicate to God that you're down to follow Him through everything. Now, after committing your way to the Lord, we see another command that's connected to a promise. David tells his readers to trust in Him, and He will act. Now, if I'm being honest, this is one of those verses that's both a bit comforting and a little confusing all at the same time. When I read this, the real question I have is, God, are you going to act in a way that aligns with my prayer? Or are you going to do something that's different that I'm not really ready for at all? The real answer to that question is that God is going to act as he sees fit. He is the self-existent one after all. But remember, we're talking about Jehovah God, the one who knows all and who is sovereign. And trust me, he knows the best thing to do when you pray. For many of us, though, this dance between commitment and trust may be one of the scariest things that we really do in life. I mean, what if I change my mind and want to do something else? Be with someone different. Take an interest in a different career. In a world of prenup agreements, month-to-month subscriptions, and the popularization of dating apps, commitment and trust are values that seem not only hard to find, but also dangerous. On a relational level, commitment opens us up to the very real possibility of what happens when commitment is broken. So much so that many people would rather roll along the road, not towards God, but towards natural discovery. In January of this year, 2020, there's a horoscope app called CoStar that had over 7.5 million users, and 15% of those users were women between the ages of 20 and 24. The mass appeal towards this app was the daily insights, and 
the guidances into the, the zones of self, spirituality, social life, and work. Now, if this doesn't reflect our desire for finding meaning and purpose in our lives, then I don't know what does. Maybe you're someone who has resisted committing your way to God because you have been let down in the past. Or even worse, you've been hurt by committing yourself to someone. Maybe for you, leaving your life in the hands of the universe seems like a better risk than committing your life to God who identifies himself as a man and as a father. But can I remind you that God has a plan for you and for your life. As you give your life over to him, he will act on your behalf. Why? Because he loves you. Now God will make moves in your life as you commit your way to him with sincere trust. But he also does more than that. He assures us that the future is bright. In verse 6, David speaks a prophetic word into the lives of his listeners and readers. He says, He, God, will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now for the Israelites, this probably would have been both an encouragement and at the same time a bit of a discouragement to them. The encouragement was that righteousness and justice would become would become a part of their story. It was on, it was on its way. But the discouragement would have been that they still needed to wait. But why did they need to wait? What was the holdup? Let's talk about this first promise. God will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Isaiah sheds some light on this in the book of Isaiah in chapter 58. In this chapter, God is speaking a word against the lifestyle of the Israelites. God provided ways for them to build their lives around worshiping God. But the Israelites went against God in their observance of regular fasting and caring for the poor. Fasting was a time to stand in solidarity with the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to shelter the homeless. But the Israelites neglected to care for those who had the needs among them, and God noticed it. But he promised the, Is the Israelites that if they would observe regular fasting as a means of worship, and if they would love the people of God, that God would then bring forth righteousness into their lives. He says in Isaiah 58, verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Isn't that amazing? From Psalms to the book of Isaiah to the book of John, God is drawing a line between the faithfulness of our service to God to the faithfulness of God's actions in our lives. And now moving on, we move into our final promise that we see here. David shares about the timeline for justice. He says, God will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In the Bible, Justice is a word used to describe right relationship. So in its essence, it's a word that speaks of the right relationships between or that people have with God, that people have with others, and that people have with the creation around them. 
Now for the Israelites, they typically didn't really want justice. They typically were a people that craved retribution. And can you blame them? They were angry. They were hurt. But God assured them that right relationship was on the way, and that was the path forward towards righteousness. And that justice, man, it was coming like clockwork, just as noon happens every day. So would justice come as well. God would do this for the Israelites practically and systemically within the people of Israel, but in an even greater way, he would do this through their Messiah, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The most dynamic initiator of right relationships was, of course, Jesus, the Son of God. In the book of Romans, we see that Jesus creates reconciliation between God and mankind through the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us that Jesus' quote, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, end quote. And just as he brings reconciliation between mankind and God, he also does so on a social level between humans within the church, between you and me. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the new life and family that we have been grafted into because of Jesus' sacrifice and his offer of grace. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, Paul says to let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In Jesus, we not only have the assurance that we're made right before God, but we also have the joy of joining the members of the church, a multi-ethnic, multilingual, intergenerational, messy, and beautiful group of Jesus followers, his family. And in closing, just considering everything that we've talked about so far, we are currently in a cultural moment where justice honestly seems a bit confusing. On one side of the political spectrum, we're seeing people say justice looks one way, while the other side is saying that it looks a whole different way. There's fear among various people groups. Relationships don't feel right right now. They feel strained by either social media posts or silence. We're seeing grotesque demonstrations of violence that are representative of prejudice and hatred that has stained our American country. All of this is now on top of the already high tensions that have been rising among our friends and our families due to the pressures associated with the coronavirus. Now, if you're anything like me, if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all, I am a nine on the Enneagram. I am the peacekeeper. I don't like to have things disrupted. It messes with my internal system. And for if you're maybe like that, maybe you're feeling right now is the time to hide. Now is the time to turn off your phone. Maybe now is the time to not engage. Or maybe you're angry and you want to take action. Maybe you want to critique. Or maybe you want to overextend yourself. Or maybe you want to show everyone how woke you are right now. But when we look at scripture, we see that it's in the times of crisis when we are to pursue right relationships and justice 
with even more tenacity. So our encouragement from scripture today is really simple. Combat fear and greed with a lifestyle of worship. Trust God and see him move in your life. And praise God that Jesus heals and restores relationships. Because this is the truth. We may not see justice that we hope for in this life, but we do have hope that one day every wrong will be made right. Jesus will bring his perfect judgment to every single wrong that has been done in this life. And until then, we hope, we pray, and we let our Father wipe our tears away. Church, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that we be a church that is so filled with love and devotion towards Jesus that we can't help but to mourn with those who are hurting, to care deeply for the felt needs of the vulnerable in our community, and to push forward a life of flourishing for our neighbors. Let Christ reside in your heart and let his presence determine your every action and decision. I love you all. Hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.